You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. If you guys have your Bibles, I would love for you to open up to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue in our series that's called Covered in Dust. And this Uh, chapter that I'm going to read is in the middle of our newest segment. The segment that we're going to look at from now until the end of kind of June is is between Matthew chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to start today in Matthew 16 to gather our theme. Um, But the the question that we'll look at for the theme uh, between Matthew 14 and and, and chapter 20 uh, is on the screen. The Matthew 14 through 20 journal looks like this. It says, Jesus, where am I losing my life? by trying to save it. In Matthew chapter 16, at the very end, we'll land on this passage, famous passage in Scripture where Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you're going to need to lose it. Jesus is going to use some some wordplay here, um, some some things that we wouldn't expect um, out of the meanings of some of these words, and he's going to redefine these words in light of the kingdom of God, and he's going to say that if you want to save your life, you're going to need to lose it. So the journal becomes, Jesus, where am I losing my life so that I can uh, save it? And where am I finding my life through losing it? And so, Jesus, we just come to you once more as we go to your scriptures. This has every solution that we need. Any question we have finds its place in, this, in these scriptures. Um, any any un, unrest or, or un, unpeace or, or lack of joy, um, it's all found its sufficiency in, in these scriptures, in these pages. And so we thank you that we know where to go. And, and so we go there when we need it, uh, when, we, when we think we need it, and also even in the times of self-sufficiency when we don't think we need it, we go to it to learn that we need it. And we need your word uh, this morning. We need your, your bread of life, and, and we thank you for your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a couple years ago, uh, if you'd been on the internet at all, you'd have to be hiding under a rock not to see these memes that were called like what I think I do versus what uh, the public thinks that I do for any given profession. Does anybody remember these memes for doctors and lawyers and teachers and police officers that really highlighted the fact that what we think from television and conventional wisdom about certain professions is nowhere near close to what would happen if you actually went to do and work in that profession? The first one I had, I think, was the teacher profession, or we'll start with the lawyer profession since uh, Stephen Lewis was up here a moment ago. Uh, there's certain prejudices, there's certain um, uh, kind of uh, assumptions that we make about the, the profession of, of the lawyer you know, uh, job here. On the top left, it's an anime picture. I don't know if that's exactly what I think of when I think of, of a lawyer, uh, but the, the idea here is the power suit, the power tie, objection. You're kind of like just, just, a, just a Denzel Washington in there. You're just owning the courtroom, and you're just quick with the words and quick with the wit, and you're just owning things by making strong arguments. What my mom thinks I do, this must be a British or Australian one because it says mum, but what my mum thinks that I do is something a little bit more boring, a little bit some, uh, more copacetic or, or calm. Uh, what society thinks that I do is that I drive a Lamborghini, I make a ton of money, I look like uh, Matthew McConaughey. What I think I do is that I'm saving the world through the lawyer and through the ju- judicial system. And what I actually do is a lot of paperwork. I don't know if that's true, Stephen, but I have seen in my jury duty escapades, as I've been telling you guys every single month, I have jury duty for an entire year. It's amazing. Every Tuesday, first Tuesday of the month. And uh, those guys get a lot of work done. And they're just really hardworking people uh, that have a lot of paperwork to do. And uh, there's no Denzel Washingtons, or at least I haven't seen them yet. All right, next slide. Uh, if you are a teacher, you might resonate with this one here. We've got a couple claps already. 
Um, we have on the top left, what my parents think that I do is they think that I wake up chipper and, br and, and bright and fresh and that everybody loves me and I'm just a people person and all that kind of thing. And what society thinks they do is I just chill all summer long. I don't have anything to do and so it's not a real job. What my friends think that I do is just manage uh, uh, chaos within uh, society and break up fights, which might be kind of accurate. Maybe the friends is the most accurate. What kids think I do is bore them to death. What I think I do is uh, shape people's destinies. And what I actually do is fall asleep at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning, whichever one that is, because that's when I'm always lesson planning. Three in the morning or three in the afternoon, I'm doing the same thing. I'm lesson planning, I'm grading. All right, let's get one more. Let me do the youth pastor one, because I thought that one was pretty great. Uh, there it is. Okay, so my friends are thinking I'm at the pizza party, right? My mom thinks that I am uh, Charles Swindoll up there preaching. Uh, what society thinks is I might choke on a marshmallow out of how many marshmallows I'm eating off of that chubby bunny game. Students think that I chill all day and play video games, which is, which is not accurate, at least it shouldn't be. What I think I do is I think I'm leading a youth movement like Louis Giglio, but actually what what I'm doing is just praying for kids, and that's a great thing. Andre, is that accurate? Is that decently accurate? Me and Andre are both teachers and both youth pastors, and so we get down with that. There's lots of different assumptions, prejudices about uh, certain professions, and when you go into the profession, go to school for it, get the job, and actually start doing the job, uh, a lot of our assumptions are nowhere close or nowhere near um, the, the actual day-to-day -day life of that profession. Usually we assume it's, it's cushier, we assume it's nicer, and then once you get into it, you realize that no matter where you're working, you're always working with people, and people can be crazy and difficult, and no matter what position that you're in, uh, there's always unexpected things um, that are added to your job description that you didn't sign up for. For. And so what we're seeing in between uh, chapters 14 and 20 uh, for the disciples as we get into the series called Covered in Dust, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow him so closely you're covered in his dust? What does it mean to follow Jesus in the, uh, the, the rabbinical pattern back in the book of Matthew? And, and what we're seeing between 14 and 20 is that the job description of come and follow uh, is getting deeper and steeper, that the, that the job description of come and follow, the cost is growing higher, that the job description of becoming a disciple and walking and following Jesus is becoming more challenging as the disciples go on. And so the relationship, uh, as Jesus draws the disciples in closer to him, as they know him more, as they listen to him talk and, and look at the, the scriptures and redefine the kingdom of God in their midst, so it is that not just their, their thoughts and their theology is being challenged, but their very, their very heart and their, their, their person, who they are, their identity, as Sharon was talking about earlier, is being challenged, that their relationship is growing but so is their responsibility that's growing. And so if we, if we just briefly look at 14 as we head into 16 in just a moment, what you have in chapters 14 and 15 are some of the most jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring miracles we see in all the pages of Scripture. Um, you have in the beginning of 14, the feeding of 5,000 people, which as you guys have probably heard before in the history books, that they're only counting the men, which probably meant there was a one to five ratio. They could have been feeding thousands of people uh, by multiplying bread and fish. They had 12 loaves or 12 baskets full of food that was left over after the fact. But what was really special for the disciples is that come and watch, come and see, come and uh, be a spectator of, turned into come and do. They were actually on a vacation, if you read between the lines there. So Jesus and the disciples were just got done doing a busy day of ministry, and they go off into the hills in the countryside, and they think they're going to get a vacation, a little chill time with Jesus, and all the poor people follow him, and they're like, Jesus, the poor people, they got to go. They're messing up the vacation. And he's like, but they're hungry. And he's like, and, and the disciples are like, yeah, but we're tired. And he's like, I want you to go feed them. And so come and see turns into come and do. Come and see turns into come and practice, partake, to participate. 
There's another passage uh, in Scripture that we'll see just after that. When they get done with that ministry initiative, they go um, off towards the shore to go cross over the sea to, to get to another region where they're going to go and minister. And, and Jesus says, you go out on the boat and I'll catch up with you guys later. I'm going to go up on the mountain. And while the disciples are on the boat, this storm comes and starts pushing their, their boat left and right and, 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 and up and down. And they get caught in this squall. And as I preached about from the very beginning of the passage, this is the moment when Jesus just appears in the middle of the storm and walks on the water and calls Peter out to him. And so the, the revelation of who God is is becoming clearer and clearer, but then so is the cost and the call of discipleship as that revelation holds them accountable. And so the, the disciples are seeing miracles they've never seen before. I mean, there are certain miracles that are just compassion miracles. They're kindness miracles. They're like, here's this, it'll say in the scriptures that here is this child that was sick and Jesus had compassion on that child and, and healed them or a blind man and gave them their sight or a crippled person and, and led them to walk. And then there's just kind of I am miracles. Just like I'm doing these miracles because I am the, the, the Son of God, because I am the Messiah. I'm going to do things that don't really have a benevolent kind of uh, compassionate draw to them. I'm just going to walk on water because I am who I am. I'm just going to multiply this bread and the these bread and fish. I could have done it in many you know, more subtle ways, but I'm going to do it in this public proclamation because I am who I am. You know, there's this moment in Matthew 17, which we'll get into in future weeks, where he just goes up this mountain and comes to this completely transcendent, translucent being just because he is, just because he wants to show that he is who he is. And so these miracles are more profound, more jaw-dropping, more awe-inspiring than any of these miracles before. And they're, and they're calling the disciples onwards, inwards, and upwards. And, and, and so here's this, this um, discipling, as we talk about what is disciple, here's this discipleship conversation that, that Peter is, um, is having with Jesus. And you can see his paradigm is being shifted. His understanding, based on Jesus' questions of who God is, is changing. And then in light of who God says that he is, as Sharon was singing about earlier, Peter begins to discover more and more of what his job description is, of who he is in light of the one who called him. And so this is where the passage starts off. It's, it's uh, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? So the Son of Man is a concept that goes all the way back to the Psalms and all the way back to books like 2 Samuel, where God identifies that the Messiah that's sent to uh, give peace and give independence for the uh, Israel nation, for the, is, for the people of God, um, is going to relate to God as a father and that he is going to be the Son. And so when they say the Son of Man, he, he's asking Peter, uh, who, do you say, who do you say that I am? Uh, the heart of the discipleship question, really, of who is a disciple and what is a disciple doing, is the disciples responding ultimately to who God is. Discipleship actually shouldn't be behavior modification. It shouldn't be a list of things to do. It shouldn't be a list of things to try or try harder at. Discipleship really should be uh, a modification of my relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship should be. Discipleship can be sometimes a list of do's and don'ts. Discipleship can be a things that I'm getting better at. But ultimately, Jesus is not... Um, okay, he is, he's not satisfied with the simple regular questions of Peter, what did you do on Thursday? He's asking him the things of the heart, the deeper questions of theology. He he's asking Peter the deeper questions of relationship identity. And so the discipleship conversation begins with Peter and uh, Caesarea Philippi with this question. And really the disciples who are all standing by because he's the four person, he's the chairman kind of the disciples. And he says, who do you say that I am? And so Peter kind of gives him this pontificating theological answer. He says, people say, 
that you are John the Baptist. So John the Baptist um, was obviously Jesus' cousin, but um, the belief that John the Baptist was in some way tied to the prophetic promise of Elijah uh, returning to earth in, in order to, to bring help and assistance to, to the nation of Israel could have you know, spoken to the idea that John the Baptist or Elijah would have shown up twice, potentially. And so some say that there was two John the Baptist, and you're just part two. And some say that you are Elijah, which would have been another derivative of the same promise. And still others say you're Jeremiah, the kind of weeping prophet, the, prophet, the one who's come to bring um, an, another rebuke to the nation of Israel. And, and then Jesus turns the, turns the conversation around as, as, as Peter is talking about these different characters of who Jesus could be. And Jesus says to him directly in a personal way, but what do you, Peter, what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? You see, there's, uh, there's kind of two different theological conversations that are always going on in all people's minds and hearts, and that's the relational conversation and then the religious conversation. And it's actually not the first time that this kind of deflection has happened. If you guys remember in John 4 when the woman at the well is sitting there with Jesus and he's asking her about these personal questions and she keeps saying, well, people say we're going to go over here and people say we're going to go over there and people are saying we should do this and people are saying that we should do that. And then what does Jesus say? Well, I, don't, I know what they say, but I want to know what? I want to know, I want to know what you say. Because, because Jesus is not interested in, in the theology of our ideas uh, so much as he is interested in the theology and the position of our heart. The questions that Jesus is asking is not what we're talking about at Bible study, right? The first question asks, what do people say? Uh, that's the kind of stuff that we, we pontificate about. That's the stuff we talk about. That's our rhetoric. That's the way we frame with language the things that are going on around us. But what Jesus says is you can actually have a lot of different thoughts. Your, your, your thinking can actually listen to a lot of different people, but your heart is only abiding in one theology at a time. And I don't want to know what they say. I don't want to know what the different topics of conversation are around the water cooler or at the well. I want to know what's in your heart. And there's only one message that can sit in the seat of your heart. Who do you say that I am? And so this is where the conversation moves really from the Bible study into the calendar and the bank account that, that preachers will sometimes talk about. It'll move into, I was thinking about it th this morning, um, you know, I argued it at men's group, but like, there's no way the government, if it needs to listen to something that you have to say, can't listen to you through this microphone. I just, I'm not a, I don't know, I'm not a conspiracy person, but I just believe that if I was a terrorist, that they would be able to listen to me through this phone. That's my own personal opinion. But our phones are very personal devices, and we might argue that our theology is more found in our phones than in our Bibles or journals. Because our phones are where we see the conversations of day-to-day -day life. Our phones are where we see the bank account. Our phones are where the calendar is set. Our phones is where the text messaging are. And so maybe the question is not, what's the theology of your head? It's the question, what is the theology in your phone? Or what is the theology in your heart? In the day-to-day -day moments of life, that is your theology. Who you believe God to be and, and who you are in light of that doesn't need a seminary degree. Everybody has a theology. Everybody has an idea about who God is and, and who they are in light of it. And we are constantly preaching about theology, not in our Bible studies, but with our actions, with our priorities, with our day-to-day -day life. And, and so maybe one of the questions we could look at even earlier in this, in, in this passage um, ongoing is, 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 what does my life say about my theology? What is my heart telling me? If I were to hand you my phone and you were to go through the pictures in my photo album and see the things that I value and take pictures of and remember, what is, what is the theology that comes out of my photo stream? What is the theology that comes out of who I follow and who I like? What is the theology of my calendar? What is the theology of the way that I text people or text them back or call them or whatever it may be? What is the theology of my life, not as the theology of my rhetoric? 
challenging questions for Peter. So Peter answers the question. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus stops the press. I mean, it's an anchor moment in all of Scripture. There's people that are waiting outside. They want to kill him. Not only do they not think he's God, they think he is of Satan. They think he's of Beelzebub. And here's a guy that's off on a vacation with Jesus, and he can actually look at this man before he dies and resurrects and says, I got my money on you. I think that you're the Messiah. Now, it's important that he's not, the, 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 he's not God. He doesn't, G, Peter doesn't see Jesus as God. Peter sees Jesus as the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who comes to deliver Israel, the one who's coming to rescue the Jewish people from, from Rome, from Roman oppression or Babylonians or Assyrians, or whoever it is that, that's, that's owning Israel at that moment, and, and to establish shalom in their city once and for all. This is the Messiah that Peter is thinking he is looking at, and he proclaims to Jesus, that is who you are. You're the Messiah, the one who's been promised. And look at Jesus calls Peter by his government name, Simon, son of Jonah, like it's a graduation. It's an important moment. He is, it's the first time he's going to be recognized by the disciples. We assume that Peter's the spokesperson and the rest of the 12 believe like him, that he is the Messiah. And this is an unlocked moment. We're going to see certain things change because of verse 16. Because of the things that came out of Peter's mouth, reality is going to change for Peter and really for the rest of the world because of what Peter says. This is how the conversation ensues. He says, this revelation, not this information, but this revelation to you didn't come to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On this rock, Peter's name actually means tetra, Petra. That's, the, that's his name in, in the Greek, and it actually means stone. It's a small stone. So, so when Jesus says, on this rock, he's not actually referring to Peter. He's referring to Peter's faith. He's referring to the word that just came out of Peter's mouth. He's going, Peter, I couldn't build anything on you. You're, you're, you're crazy. You're going to deny me three times, but what I can build on is your faith. You're a small rock with a big faith, and I'm going to build my church on your faith. My ecclesia, this is, Matthew is known as one of the ecclesia, is, is known as the ecclesia gospel. It's the only one that talks about the church. It, it talked about it once before when, we, when it said that his family was gathered in a small house and drawn near to him, um, and, and, and he called them his children, his sons, his daughters, his brothers and sisters, his mothers. That was the, the ecclesia, and he's going, that faith, that revelation is going to be where I put the foundations of my church upon. It's that revelation, not that information. Did you know there's a difference between information and revelation. It speaks back to the idea I was talking about, about head and heart, but, but you can have 10 people and say, who is Jesus Christ? And they might say, Savior of the world, Messiah. Matter of fact, I think it's what, 80% of Americans, if you pull them, you know, are you a Christian? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? And, and many of them will say yes. But Jesus isn't asking those questions, is he? He's not asking what you would check off on the box. He's asking about your heart. He's asking about your phone. He's asking about your day-to-day. -day. He's not asking for information. He's asking for revelation. How do we know that? Because when, when Peter speaks it out, he says, oh, you said it differently. Like a lot of the other, like I think it was Nathaniel or, or some, one of the disciples was like, man, you knew me under the tree before I was even here. You must be the son of God. And Jesus is like, well, come and find out. Well, that was a different, that was a different assumption. This is, the, this is a strong asserted, unemotional, you are the Messiah. I've, I've decided it in my heart. This, the throne of my heart can only seat one, and I've decided that you're the one that sits on it. You're, you are the Messiah. And he says, that revelation, that's not from a class. There's 10 people, if I interviewed them, they'd all say that Jesus is Lord, but, but something about you is different because you've received 
a revelation. And this is, this is what we need to ask for in our discipling journeys, in our lives, is not just for information, but God, would you open up my heart that I would see you, that I would, my heart, the eyes of my heart would see you and catch a revelation of who you are because revelation is where Jesus is building his church. So the graduation happens, the induction ceremony. You have, you have, you, you have entered the kingdom of heaven and, and not only that, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So here's the promotion. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's one of these things where um, if, you, if you took it um, w- without a sense of accountability, then the disciples would think that they could just go around and call things as they are and just do whatever it is that they want to do, and Jesus would just sort of back them up. But the reality is, of course, is that in, in heaven, under authority, that Peter and his disciples are now being accountable, and they are being empowered to go walk out what God wants when he wants it for the reasons that he wants it to happen. And Peter is accountable, responsible, empowered, as well as the disciples because of the revelation, not the information, to go and be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, then he orders the disciples not to tell anyone he is the Messiah. So you got to love Jesus because he sees who somebody is before he stumbles over who they're not. And he calls Peter out for all of his failures, future failures and past failures, and, and gives him a measure of prominence and stature that no man or woman has ever received up until this point. And that is that he is going to be the, his faith is going to be the rock on which the church is built. But you, you know, based on the verses that we're going to read next, that Peter only half gets it. He says, there's some revelation that you got from the Father, but when we get to the end of this passage, he's also going to show Peter that there's revelation that he's received from his culture that, that are from the thoughts of man, not from the thoughts of God. And so, so he speaks to Peter and calls him up and he promotes them. But we, knows, we know that he only half gets it because just as much as, as Jesus has kind of been doing these jaw-dropping miracles throughout the passage from 14 to 20, that the conversation of the disciples as they're promoted into some of this greatness, and that is the segment that we're in right now, following Jesus from greatness to least. We've done following Jesus from the inside out and outside in and, and from violence to belief. And the name of this whole portion, I believe, the theme that ties it, is from greatest to least. And, and one of the fun things or funny things that happens throughout this passage, these passages is the disciples start to, to talk about their, you know, their name in the press, their name in the lights, their name in the stars. They talk about this greatness that Jesus is, is imposing, and they're talking about how they're going to be uh, caught up, swept up, and connected to this greatness. They're going to be elevated as Jesus is elevated. They're become great as Jesus is great. And so the questions that they start asking each other as they race each other from one place to another, this disciple was faster than that disciple, and this one is better looking than that disciple, or whatever it may be, they're asking themselves the question, what does it mean to be great, and how do I become the greatest? They took Jesus' sermon and they're like, I want to apply that part of the sermon to my life. How can I be great? And Jesus is saying, actually, I don't mind you wanting to be great. I want you to be great. I called you to be great, but great's going to mean something different. And so one of even the mothers, you know how we have helicopter parents that the mothers just keep following the kids around and helping make sure that the kids get everything that they deserve and even more. And so the, the, the helicopter mom, you know, the sons of Zebedee come up and they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, you know when you go and uh, capture your throne and go like uh, vindicate us against the Romans? When you go sit on your throne, can you put a plaque of my two sons' name to your left and your right? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy talk. But, but they believe that there is going to be a throne. There's going to be a literal physical gold throne. I mean, they're thinking about Macklemore outfits and Dumb and Dumber Lamborghinis. They're thinking they're ready to move to the top, onwards and upwards, the path of least resistance. They're ready to move up and be elevated into this greatness that Jesus is inaugurating into the Jewish story. And they're asking themselves, how can they be great? You can see how they get some of the revelation of the kingdom, but they miss the revelation of the cross. And so this is where the fault line 
is, is revealed in verse 21. Jesus continues. This is the exact next passage. He's headed from, Capern- uh, from, from uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he begins in this passage. It's going to say, from then on. Actually, I'll read it from, from verse 21. The first, what, four words of this passage are, from then on. There's a hundred-mile trek that goes from Caesarea Philippi, where, where Peter gets the, the keys to the kingdom, down south 105 miles to Jerusalem. And there's, there's, there's no divergence in Jesus' ministry from here on out, meaning he's going to change directions in Caesarea Philippi, next to Mount Hernan in the northern area of the kingdom of Israel, and he's going to move down south, and he's not going to move backwards into Jerusalem. And the next time that he arrives at Jerusalem, he'll arrive on a donkey, he'll bring in a kingdom that we talked about uh, back at Palm Sunday, and he won't leave that city without dying on the cross. And so this 100-mile journey begins to change the climate and the temperature and the message to the disciples about what it means to be a disciple. And he starts to talk amidst all of these great miracles, this crazy stuff that no one's ever seen anybody do. They'll say they never did a miracle like this anywhere in Israel. In the midst of all this elevation and greatness, he keeps preaching at them, serving, serving, dying. He predicts his death three times, dying, serving. The greatest will be last. The greatest will be least. The children are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, like, like it's, not the, it's not the great things of the world. It's the simple things of the world. It's, it's the low. It's the one who come, who come down to serve people. Don't rule over like the Gentiles do and impress leadership upon people, but rather get down humble and slow. Being upward is, is moving downwards in the kingdom of heaven. It's this up, upside down paradigm that he begins to preach. And so in verse 21, it says, from that time on, The tenor of the message changes to the disciples. They signed up to be disciples, but their job description is evolving. It's shifting. It's growing, just like ours. If we're following Jesus, we're not standing still. We're always moving, and the conversation is always growing deeper. And we're we're approaching uh, mysteries in areas that we don't know about, and Jesus is speaking into those mysteries as we ask him if we're humble enough to ask. This is the process of being a disciple. Disciple means learner. It doesn't mean standing still. It doesn't mean a one-time thing that we check the box. It's a process of following him deeper and onward and upward into the kingdom of God. And so the the tenor of the whole message changes. He says, he begins to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That's his path. No one's going to divert him from the southern track. His march to the south is from the Father's will, so nobody's going to deter him from that. And he's going straight beeline from, from, from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders. And this just, just causes all sorts of clamor to the disciples. Why? Because they have just tethered their boat to his ship. And if he's going to be a leader that goes to die for his cause, if the, if the servant can't be greater than the master, then what does that mean for the followers of Jesus if their leader dies? This is all happening in the, in, the, in, the, in the scope of a couple of passages. He's going to suffer many things. He predicts his death three times within the, the scope of 14 through 20. It says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law, that they must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside. He's like, Jesus, let's go to Starbucks for a second. We need to have a little chit-chat about this because that didn't line up with what I wrote down in the Moleskine. Remember the greatness thing and the kingdom thing and the Macklemore outfit? Remember how I was going to cruise in and there's going to have fireworks when I walked down the road? Remember how we were famous together? Remember how we are going to be great together, Jesus? Messiahs don't die in the end. That's not how it's supposed to end. I've got to talk to you. So he pulls him aside. He rebukes Jesus. Jesus. I know better than you. Never, Lord, he said. That shall never happen to you. Never. And Jesus turns to Peter in the most confrontational way he could do it. Like he didn't do it sideways and say, well, you know, some people think this. I mean, he squared up with the dude. And he says to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, 
but merely human concerns. In the scope of the passage, from the conversation first with Peter where he's elevated, and then this second passage that we read where he's severely demoted and, and called out in front, of, in front of the other disciples, we see a theology of God and we see a theology of Satan. And it's interesting that his misconception, Peter's misconception, like his, his revelation, but then his confusion at the same time reveal that the theology, the theology of Satan really isn't get behind me traffic or get behind me bad parking spot or get behind me slow internet or get behind me bad relationship. Like, like the, the theology of Satan, the ways of man juxtaposed with the ways of God are really pretty black and white and polar. It's either Jesus is on the throne or somebody else. And the ways of Satan that Jesus has just pro, like given prognosis for isn't inconvenience or lack of comfort. The ways of Satan are pretty simple. Selfishness, self-centeredness, me first, others last. This is what Jesus is preaching. He says, I'm coming to bring a kingdom. It's not to rescue from Rome, it's to rescue from sin. They can't wrap their minds around it. They have a revelation that Jesus is going to be elevated, but they don't have a revelation that he's going to be elevated through death and resurrection. They don't get it yet. And so it's completely alienating to the culture of Peter's heart when Jesus says that your master is going to die at the hands of a botched trial. And he's saying, this is what it would be like to be like God, to elevate Jesus, to say that Jesus is Lord, that is godliness. But he says the exact opposite would take place if anything else would be on that throne. And it's the self selfishness, the self-centeredness, the self-preservation, the, the kind of me first, me only, it's about me attitude. This is what the gospel is saying. It's, it's leading us in one single story. So this is, what, <clears throat> this is what my sermon of sentences this morning. It's a few sentences. There are many paths to discipleship, but there's only one destination. Every journey with Jesus in this room, no matter who you are, how old you are, what denomination you come from, what experience you have, what background you have, we are all on multiple journeys heading towards the same destination. And that destination, no matter who we are at any given time, is to the only destination of any Christ follower is the cross. That the journey of being a disciple is about learning. It's about taking steps. It's about following Jesus in anywhere that he would lead. And, and, and some of us will never go on a mission trip in this room. Some of us will never put our hands on somebody and, and see them healed. Some of us won't go to seminary. Some of us in this world are illiterate and know, know how to read the scripture. And there's only one God, one faith, one baptism, one father overall that's uniting his church for the cause of the kingdom and the earth. And all of them have different tribes and tongues, and they're all different in different experiences, and they're all going to meet the same Jesus in different ways, but they're all the same in one way, which is that Jesus is meeting every person right where they are, but not leaving them there, and leaving them, and, and rather leading them in one singular direction, which is the cross. And one of the things that can happen to us is we experience something great along the journey of discipleship is we can get posted up and camp out at a place and think it's the destination, but we're not at the destination yet. And we can try and make ultimately a new religion out of something or a new doctrine or a new theology out of something that isn't the cross. And so as awesome as feeding the poor would be as a part of a ministry, there is easy ways to get entrapped in that culture of, of benevolence and feeding the poor and mistake that that is the only explicit way to preach the gospel, but it's not. And there's ways that, that some of us can get really deep into really awesome theological, 
you know, uh, discussion and study and richness and, and revelation of who God is. And we think this is it. This is how you find Jesus. This is the only way. And life is about finding everybody wherever they are and leading them to the scriptures and letting them get a PhD in theology. But Jesus is saying that's not the end of the destination. The destination is Jerusalem. The destination is me on the throne. The destination has to come through death. It can come in no other way. We have experiences in worship and soaking in the Holy Spirit, and we think this is where people need to be. This is the only way. And Jesus is saying, no matter who you are or where you are, I'm finding you and I'm leading you. If you want to come and follow, you can follow me, but I'm only going to one destination. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the place where your selfishness, not what they say, not what's on your theological bumper sticker, but what's in your heart, what you say, when you lay your head down at night, what you say, what your life is saying, what your phone is saying, what your relationships are saying, that either puts Jesus on the throne or someone else. It either has the thoughts of God or somebody else's thoughts. And what he wants to know from you and from me is that are you coming to the cross or are you headed somewhere else? Because every step in the journey is different and you'll never see a day that has the old mercies on it. Every day has a new mercy on it and a new word, and a new daily bread that's leading you somewhere, but it's leading you towards the cross of Jesus, out of selfishness into selflessness, out of self-preservation into serving, out of self-centeredness into Christ-centeredness. Every destination of every journey leads you to the cross. Have you guys ever been to Disney World before? You guys might see where I'm headed with this. Disney World is the happiest place on earth. I went to the Chinese Disney World one time in Hong Kong. It's small enough that you can go to all the different places. Me and Rose, we just went to all of them. We went to the teacup. We went to Space Mountain where she cried a little bit because she was a little bit young, but Dad had to push her. He had to get her out of the boat. You know, We went over to, 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 to uh, <clears throat> Space Mountain. We went through roller coasters. We went to the Toy Story place. We went and saw Tarzan swinging around on that thing. We went to the whole thing. And it's a small enough park where it's only like 2,000 people, and you start to see it's like, there's Fanny Pack Dad, and there's guy with the pants that are too small that he shouldn't have worn today, and there's Mom with the visor on, and there's the, 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 the sea of kids that are from the after-school club. You start to see them because they're all in line with them all at the same time. But the cool thing about Disney World is no matter where you go during the day, that at 7 o'clock or whenever it is the, the, the sun falls, at 7 o'clock, everything shuts down and everybody goes where? They go to the castle. And they play the second star to the right shines in the night for you. I just need to sing it because it's so fun. And there's like lights and neon and all this stuff going on and this hullabaloo. And everyone's like, we're all together. We're united because we all love Disney. And they all come to the castle. And there's fireworks everywhere. And it's just an amazing show. And they know how to sell you because all the little like uh, stuffed animals and the T-shirts and all the merch is all out there and all the food. And it's like, it's the big hurrah. It's like, woohoo, we made it. We all got a... We all got sunburns and we all had the Disney fast passes and nobody threw up and it was great. And everybody's got something to remember when they get to the castle. And this is the picture that, I'm, that I get. I just wanted to leave it with you because it helps it stick better. But it's like, this is the picture that I get is that when, at the end of time, when we all go meet the end, we're all going to meet each other at the same place. And there's going to be tongues and tribes and nations and lots of different personalities. But none of those personalities is going to trump his. And at the end of the day, there's only one destination we're leading to, towards. And that is the destination of the cross. It's the place where, where, where my flesh, where what I want, me first, my background over yours, my thing over your thing, where that, where it just gives way. Where, where the, the place where my agenda and my, and my politics and, and, and my slant and my journey 
It gives way because it's not as big as the cross. It's not as big as the crucifixion. It's not as, as big as the, the blood of Jesus. And so the funniest thing is, is that I, I've, I've done, you know, the Christian thing, as you guys have for many of you guys for more years than I have, and have met just wonderful, powerful people in the Lord. I mean, I've gone up here and I've talked about my Uncle Peter, who's got all his missionary stuff and orphanage in China. And then there's Lola Slaughter. I told you about the, the lady who, who helped disciple some of the people in, in Kyra's family. And, and she had that thing where she forgave. Remember, the, she, I've told you guys one time, she forgave this woman right there in church that had murdered her sister, you know, like talk about history with God. And then I've had the awesome privilege to meet like, you know, uh, profile leaders or whatever, like people that, you know, like run bigger organizations and, and, and are bigger global leaders or whatever. And you, and you talk to them and it's funny because they're from different places and all from different journeys, but they all have that similarity. Have you ever seen that before? That similarity of when, when the cross and the enduring work of sanctification of growth and becoming a disciple just works on somebody and they're just not offendable anymore. They just have a joy, like a, like a soft heart and tough skin because of what it meant to follow Jesus from, from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem. And they have that kind of like not, I don't need to impress you and I'm not really impressed by you really except for Jesus in you. Like they have that thing. Like if they're charismatic or Presbyterian, they just, you could get them in the room together. They'd all kind of get along because at the end of the day, Jesus is such a much more commonality than anything else. And so this is, this is my intentional question this morning, and then, um, and then I'll close. But the intentional question of the morning is this. Jesus, where am I losing my life by trying to save it? On our journey, what's essentially happening is the prayer of a disciple is more of, more of you and less of me. Less of me. And, and there's lots of movements that are going to tell us, like, well, Christianity is about being bubbly and charismatic, or Christianity is about being real nice and wearing khaki pants, or Christianity is about being, you know, super loud and demonstrative and praise and worship and, and, and Jesus' life is just saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. Christianity is losing yourself to gain in his kingdom. Christianity can be practiced in any denomination. Christianity, as long as it's ascribing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is the gospel. Christianity is me giving way of me first and, and going into, into Christ-centeredness. That's the only destination there is. Wherever we are, we know we're in that moment and there's not a need to rush ahead, but but, but it's good to know where he's leading us. At the end of the day, he's not leading us into tongues and prophecy. He's not leading us into, into Calvinism. He's not leading us into uh, you know, church management and structure and branding. No, he's, he's using all of those things to lead to the cross. And we can't get the destination confused with the journey. The journey is leading us to one central place, and that's the cross, the cross alone, the place where I'm giving myself up for, for him and his glory, the place, where I, the place where I'm dead to myself, the place in Ezekiel where the prophet Ezekiel walks into the water where the water goes up to his neck and to his head where it's filled and being filled with the Holy Spirit. When you look at with you or at me, when I follow Jesus down to Jerusalem, you just don't see me anymore. And Oliver tries to save Oliver. He tries to save Oliver's personality and Oliver's possessions and, and comes up with theologies to, to, to defend that. But there's only one theology, and it's in your heart. The question is, who am I to you in your heart? Am I the Messiah? Am I the one who has come to save you, not from the Romans, but from your sin and from yourself and from selfishness? That's the only journey that anyone goes on in this world. It looks many different ways, but that's the journey that we're on. Let's just put up the, the, the come and see, come and be, and I'll invite the band to come forward. But if you look at some of this language that's up here on the board, and we're going to use this for, for, our, for our walkthrough for the next couple of weeks in, in Matthew 14 through 20. But John the Baptist at the beginning of Matthew 4 proclaims this, all who hear and all who see to just come and see. This is the, this is the inaugural you know, kingdom. The kingdom of hand, heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the first profile of what the public sees of who Jesus is. 
And when we first come to know Jesus, there's a moment in our in church stuff at City Lights, we use the word behold, but it's this moment where it's like, I don't just see it because I, I think it. I see it because I see it. I just see it. The light bulbs turn on and I can see Jesus for all that he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who comes to take the sin, away the sins of the world. He's the one that created Mount Everest. He's the one who props his feet up on the moon. He's the one that knows me and sees me and loves me still. I can see him. There's this moment. And then there comes the moment where he says, come and follow. Where it's not just come and see, but it's come and be and come and do. There's this moment where you step into the regular rhythms of community, where you, where you make it about what your life is about. It's just not a moment or an encounter. It's not a Sunday thing. It's a, it's a Sunday through Sunday thing. It becomes this, hey, come and follow me and, and I'm gonna put my yoke upon you and I'm gonna let you rest. And this season's very important in the life of a disciple because sometimes we get to the do phase before we get to the be phase and we become legalists and, and stressed out because we're trying to do stuff to earn God's favor. And Jesus is just saying, before you do anything, just be with me. And for some of us in this room, maybe there's a season where we have to pull back into that a little bit because we're not really doing anything profitable unless we're saturated and soaked in the gospel that he loves me because he loves me, not because of anything that I do. And that's a part of the journey of the disciple. But as he gets him going, as he, as he gets him into the best thing there is, as he gets him into the kingdom of God, which is better and greater than anything else, of course they'd want to be and do a part of the thing. And so they start to, he starts to baptize. They talked about your, your, your disciples are baptizing more than me or than more than Jesus. He's like, that's right, because my disciples aren't, aren't, aren't spectators, they're participants, they do things. You go feed them, you multiply the bread, you go and put your hands on the sick, you go and heal them. You go and serve, you go and volunteer, you go and, and be a part of this thing, but, but every track, no matter how that looks, from come and see to come and be to come and do, it ends in the same destination, it ends at, at the kingdom castle, it ends at the cross. And that's the places that I, I have nothing to add to you, Jesus. I have nothing to add to your reputation. I have nothing to add to my reputation. I have nothing left to defend Jesus. I have nothing left to add to my itinerary, Jesus. I have no wisdom to add to you. I have nothing to rebuke you on, Jesus, to tell you that you're not the Son of Man. There comes this place where we all are headed as toward the cross to stay there and to be there and to do our life there in the gospel and the daily rhythms of relationship right there at the cross. And that's where we're all headed and we're all in a detour until we get there. And so this is the call. Where are you at? Are you coming to see? Are you coming to be? Are you coming to do? Are you coming to die? This is the only destination. He's letting you know from, from ahead. He's not a spectator sport. He's not here to advertise, to do consumerism. He's coming to be disciple makers that make disciples, that lay down their life so they start to look like Christ's life. Are you engaged in the process of following Jesus? Are you following him? Are you taking steps? Are you standing still? Let's stand up for a gospel moment as we close in worship this morning. Our gospel moment is the thing that gives us power. Well, not the moment, but the gospel itself. We define it every morning to remind ourselves that following Jesus only happens because the Father gives us revelation for it. The Father touches us on the shoulder. The Father cares for us and carries us. And this is what he's doing in the world. We call it the gospel. It's a beautiful word that we can help to give framework for everything that God's doing in the world. But the gospel is what leads us down to Jerusalem. It's the good news that Jesus came to bring us from spiritual death into spiritual life through his cross. And then he loves us. He did it because not to prove a point or to be a dictator, but to be a savior and to be a father and to be a shepherd. And he died for us so we could have close relationship with him, to know him, not just in our head and our heart and in our phones, in our lives, in our everyday interactions. So you trust him. Let Jesus be the, uh, trust him that Jesus' death is the only way to spiritual life. You can receive him today in abundance through prayer. And so, Jesus, we come to you for our next step and that's all. Um, that we have. That's all that we need. It's just that next step. Jesus, you said that I didn't come to eat normal bread of grain. I came to do the work of my father. That's my bread. 
And so um, we just come to your scriptures and we're told again today that the cross is the destination and that's where we're headed. And so get us there quicker, God. Get things, get us, get things out of our heart that needs to get out of our heart. You're the only one who knows that we can have revelations of God and mixed cultural revelation in our heart. And God, so just displace the culture for your kingdom. Put that kingdom culture, that eternal culture into our heart, God, that we might know you and follow you and be a disciple of yours. We love you in Jesus' name. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.